the internet has made it possible for us now to see people, learn about people that we might otherwise never have learned about. Uh, it's become easier to travel, and we are traveling more and more to farther and farther places. And you would think that would make all of us closer. You would think that that would bring down the walls, and yet we see almost the exact opposite taking place. We see people becoming more divided, uh, more, more isolated, and uh, more division among us. Uh, I felt this uh, probably most acutely when I moved to Japan. Uh, no, no question, the, the most difficult part of life and ministry for every missionary in Japan is that sense of isolation, a sense that there's always a barrier between you and your neighbors, you and the uh, Japanese people that you live, uh, live with and minister among. Uh, it probably doesn't help that the Japanese word for foreigner is literally outside person. And uh, so you're reminded of that every time you hear the word, oh, you're an outside person. You're, you're one of those. Uh, it, it probably doesn't help that every time you leave your home, you have to carry a card that on the top says alien registration card. And I kind of feel, felt I should have like tentacles coming out of my head or something when I, whenever I looked at that. I, I felt this probably most uh, uh, symbolically when I, I was on a relief trip in northern Japan. I was in a small rural fishing village, and I was at a sushi counter. And I, I was there with a Chinese-American uh, friend and colleague, and we were um, just having dinner after a long day of work and ministry. And there was someone at the end of the counter who wanted to speak with us. So the, a, a Japanese man at the end of the counter called out to my friend and, and said something. And at the end of what he said, he said, and translate for your friend and uh, did that. And I, I had understood what he said um, well enough. And, and uh, so I just replied to him directly. At which point, almost as if he couldn't connect that the words were coming out of my mouth, he replied not to me, but to my friend, whom he assumed because he was Chinese-American that he must maybe be Japanese. And so he replied to him. And then at the end of what he said, he again said, and translate for him. <laughs> and for a beginning part of the evening, we had this triangular conversation that went like this with him still, every, every time he would say something, he would follow it by and translate for him. And it was a reminder to me that we can see people, but not really hear them. And sometimes when we look at people, what we see actually can keep us from hearing them. It, we can put up walls in our own hearts and minds, as we've, even as we're interacting with them. And we see this division all around us today. Uh, we see division in our politics like crazy division in our politics. We see division in race. We see divi division in morality, in our ethics, and how we see the world. Uh, we see what well, we saw this past week, that even Remembrance Day can be a, a cause for great division for us as a culture. Like it, 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 we are a people that just keep putting up walls and keep 
getting farther from each other when you would have thought all of these advances in technology would have brought us closer to one another. Today's passage, I believe, answers something of this question in, in helping us to see what God is doing to heal the divisions in our world today. And it's not what we typically think of when we, when we think of uh, divisions in our world today, but I, I think it's important for us to, uh, to reflect on what God is doing in, in our midst in, in this. Uh, we have been in a series on prophecy where we have been... Um, called God is that you and we've been trying to understand how God speaks how we can understand God's speaking in this world how we can understand uh, gifts like prophecy and uh, roles like prophet and today's passage gives us some some hints and some direction on on uh, apostles and prophets as they are described in the New Testament uh, but it does so in the context of a message of God working to heal the divisions in our world and to bring uh, unity to a people through whom he would uh, show his greatness and work among us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. In your pew Bibles, in the rack in front of you, it's on page 919. And I'm going to read from verse 18 down to 22 and uh, just going to be working through that uh, for the entirety of the message. If you keep that out open in front of you, uh, you'll be able to refer to it. Ephesians 2, verses 18 to 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Now the first thing this passage teaches me is that God is, is working to unite a people to display his greatness. That what he is actually seeking to do in, in healing the, the division in our world is to start by healing a people, calling out for himself a people that would be separate to him, a family where there are no barriers, no walls, where there are no castes or classes, where people relate to one another as brother and sister, and, and doing so so that he could show the world something of who he is. God is uniting a people to display his greatness. Now, when he begins in verse 19, he uses two words that in first century Rome were loaded with emotional impact. He talks about strangers and aliens. A, a stranger was a, a, a word that referred to someone who was uh, displaced, uh, very much like the, the, the refugees from, from Syria were displaced and poured into Lebanon and, and uh, other countries around the world. A stranger referred to someone who was an outsider ethnically. They probably didn't speak your language. They probably weren't committed to your culture. Aliens were in a different situation. Whereas strangers would have been forced to move economically and often they were temporarily um, in a particular setting, uh, people who were aliens referred to 
those who were trying to make a, a new life for themselves in, an, in a new setting. So these were immigrants who had settled, they were permanent, and yet they didn't have the, the status or the privilege. They didn't have some of the rights of, uh, of, of citizenship. And so they were, they were kind of in that in-between uh, place in terms of their status and, and, uh, uh, and didn't yet have citizenship. That, that was our status for 15 years in Japan, where we were, we were accepted as guests, we were received and, and, and allowed to, to live there, but without any of the rights of, of, of citizenship. You couldn't vote, you couldn't decide on things, you, you didn't uh, get certain benefits that others would have as citizens. Your guests kept at arm's length. When he declares in verse 19 that you are fellow citizens with the saints, it's a picture of radical inclusion. It's a picture of people who were far, for whom there had been barriers, for whom there had been walls, and, and, and the message that God has brought them near, that God has brought down those walls that in Christ they might uh, enjoy full acceptance. Citizens have rights and privileges that aren't granted to outsiders. Uh, they, the, the message here is that through Christ, we have the full privileges of heavenly citizens, uh, that we have been granted access to God and and we enjoy a unity now around new values, uh, around new dreams and new hopes, and we have a new loyalty. So here there isn't any place for a Christian caste system, Christian classes, Christian cliques, and Christian barriers between us. And it's that message that we have been brought near, that we are unified in Christ. Now, sharing citizenship is one thing, but sharing a family bond is another. And so when Paul goes on then to say, you are members of the household of God, it's saying that our unity is not just civic, but it is familial. We have a, a bond that should hit at the deepest level of human relationship, that there should be that sense of unity among God's people, that that kind of unity is possible because as someone puts their faith in Christ, God becomes their primary and orienting loyalty. And everything else becomes less significant in relation to this one loyalty that we enjoy in God. And having called upon him as father, we now relate to one another in Christ as brother and sister. Now our unity is not based on things that we have in common and hobbies and interests and schedules and background, now our unity is at a deeper and more fundamental level because of our faith in Christ and the transformation that's taken place in our lives. Now, you might think this is just one of those common encouragements to harmony. This could have been any philosopher at any time in, in history, and yet, this message in Paul's day was profoundly countercultural. Uh, just around the time that Paul wrote these words in a city called Caesarea, there had been a riot that had just broken out between Jews and Syrians. There were profound uh, uh, divisions between various ethnicities within the Roman Empire. There were divisions between those who had citizenship and those who did not. 
There were divisions between slaves and free. There were divisions even in the temple. Uh, when God had given instructions for the uh, creation of the temple, there was only one wall that divided people, and that was the wall that divided the priests, who were set apart for his service and uh, the rest of the people. And yet by the time you get to first, the first century, the temple had expanded. And guess what? Humans in their humanness decided to add some more walls. So by the first century, without any prescription from God, they'd added a court for the Gentiles. They'd put a, a, a wall so that the, the non-Jewish people could have their part in the temple. They also had a court of women. So the women were also walled off and given a barrier to keep them in their corner. And so even in the temple of God, you had these barriers that people were putting up even as God was seeking to bring the barriers down. So you, you have this, uh, this, this picture of, of people adding walls and and, and yet God seeking to erase them. Verse 21 gives something of the reason. It says that we're being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. What it means is that God is seeking to bring together a people that instead of that temple that was made with, with bricks and mortar, that we would be a, a temple in our relationships with one another that relationally we would form a fellowship that would function as the place where humanity now meets with God. And he did that and he authenticates that community by the, the relationships he, he establishes between us. God wants, to see people, uh, want, wants people to see the grace that we show to one another, the love that we show to one another, and for people to see in that a picture of his greatness. As people were, would, would come into this fellowship where there are no more any barriers, there are no more any classes or cliques or, or, or distinctions between people on the basis of those human things, the, the idea is that people would come into that fellowship and say, only God could do that. Only God could have created this fellowship of people. Only God could have given them such a love for one another, such a, a, a forgiving acceptance and, and grace towards one another. God must be truly at work here. When you think about our world, when you think about our divisions, when you think about the walls that we create be between people, the hatred and the prejudice, when you think of how superficial relationships can often be, and we can use that to keep our distance from those that we don't want to engage with, imagine how it would speak to people if they saw a church community where those walls had been torn down, where people related like family because their primary loyalty wasn't to their, their background, wasn't to their economic status, wasn't to their favorite sports team, but it was to a God who had loved and redeemed them. Imagine how that would speak into our world of division and, and, and the walls that we put up. Imagine a church fellowship where people make time to build relationships with each other, not because they've got lots of spare time on our hands because we don't, 
not because we just have common interests on a, on a superficial level, but because we b- believe this is who God has created us to be. That, that we believe that God has, has designed us to be family to one another. And that he calls himself father and he calls us to call one another brother and sister that we might express that, uh, that, that family type relationship with one another. This is at the heart of God's plan to reach the world. It's at the heart of God's plan to authenticate that this is his people, that this is, this is what he has done. Because as you look around in the world today, we recognize that humanly we're, we're just not, don't seem to be capable of doing this. We keep seeming to move farther from each other, even when, humanly speaking, you think, naturally, there, you, would, you would think that people would be drawing closer together. God does this so that people would see him, see his greatness, and see what he is doing, and enter into the fellowship of God's people and say, God is at work here. This is his doing. And this is at the heart of his plan to heal the divisions in our world. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, this is at the heart of his plan for all of our lives. God is uniting a people to display his greatness. And so I'd, I'd call you to live out your identity, to look for opportunities to take the walls down, to build relationships. To, I'd encourage you to, to make time to express this thing called family. We, we can't be family if we never have any investment in family. And we, family makes time for one another. Family gets close to one another. Family cares for, for, for one another and looks for opportunities to, to build each other up. So God is uniting a people to display his greatness. And he does, he, when he talks about that, he describes us as a spiritual temple because it is through us that he would desire to show his greatness to this world. But the temple must be built on the right foundation. And so that's where the text moves next in talking about this uh, sure foundation upon which the people of God, the people God is uniting are built upon. He talks next about this sure foundation because if you and I are running in different directions with different values, with different uh, ideas, perspectives, and at, at the foundation, at the core of, of who we are and what we are doing, we are divided, then there can be no real unity. The people God is uniting are built on a sure foundation. Now, verse 20 says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. A foundation is a thing that stabilizes everything, Right? A foundation is a thing that when you're building a building, you get the foundation straight, you get, it, you get it well made, and then the walls go up straight. The foundation is crooked. If, if it is, if, if it is not, not solid, you will always have problems in your construction. The foundation is a thing that make, will make your building last. Now, the foundation of the temple that God's building among us is, according to this, word, this passage, the apostles and the prophets. And the, the, the order of the language is probably important here. If it had have said the prophets and the apostles, we might have said, oh, I get it. Paul's referring to 
the Old Testament, the New Testament, prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament. But his order of apostles and then prophets probably is a hand that he's talking about apostles and New Testament prophets. Uh, he pairs these same two words together in Ephesians 3.5, just a few verses down. And there it's, it's absolutely clear that he's talking about New Testament prophets. Likely that's the, uh, the implication here as well. The apostles and prophets were foundational to the church in many ways. Uh, they gave the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. They gave, uh, they gave the first sermons. They had the first converts. They established the first churches. But when it talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it probably refers primarily to the scriptures they left, left us with. It's the same thing that's happening in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. People have, have debated, what, what do you mean, like, Peter's this rock, and I will build my church, and what's going on there? there? There could be some sense in which people would point to the day of Pentecost, and Peter preaches that sermon, and the church is born. So there, there's some sense in which uh, Peter is, is foundational. He's a rock upon which uh, God established the church, but more likely what, what's going on here is that it is Peter's confession here. In verse 16, where, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is that profession that becomes the bedrock for the founding of the church. That idea that Jesus Christ is not just a human, human teacher, he's not just a religious holy man, but he is the eternal son of God who came to bring salvation to the world. It is that message, that profession, that forms the rock upon which the church has been built. And so probably something similar is, is taking place in, in our text this morning when it says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The point is that the scriptures that they left us with are what unifies us, that we, what guides us. It is that, that, that is our authority and our guide. And we need to align everything that we do in relation to it. Let's consider just these two roles for a moment. Let's start with the, uh, the, uh, the apostles. This word apostle gets used a couple of different ways in the Bible. And first of all, we need to say apostle just comes from a Greek word. It's what's called a loan word or a transplant word where you just take the, the word from one language and drop it into another, like karaoke or other words that we have borrowed from other languages. So uh, the, word, the Greek word is apostolos. It just means one who is sent out. And here, you, in the New Testament, you'll see the word used one of two ways. There's a few instances where it's just used in a, in a casual, non-technical sense as one who is sent out. And, and those times, it usually gets translated as messenger. So sometimes, apostolos becomes messenger, just someone who's sent on an errand or a mission of some kind. Usually, however, it's used in a technical sense. It's used to refer to the 12 disciples of Jesus who were designated apostles and uh, the, the Apostle Paul, the one who, who has uh, written much of the New Testament. So uh, in, in that narrow and technical sense, there are no longer any, prof any apostles. We don't, 
we don't refer to people as apostles because they had a unique authority to establish, uh, to establish the church and to speak authoritatively for God. I say that there are no, technically in that narrow sense, any apostles today because there were two conditions for being an apostle. The first was that you had to be chosen by Jesus. Acts chapter 1 verse 2 says that Jesus had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And, and so the idea here is you don't just get to appoint yourself to be an apostle or declare yourself to be an apostle. It's why Paul will usually say that he's an apostle by the will of God or by the command of Christ Jesus. You'll, you'll see that phrase after he uh, introduces himself as an apostle because he recognized you don't just become an apostle because you want to be an apostle. You are called by God and designated by Jesus Christ to that specific role. The second condition of apostle was that they had witnessed Jesus' resurrection. So, for instance, when Matthias was set apart as the 12th apostle as a replacement for Jesus, uh, for Judas, they said, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That was an essential part of the role. They needed someone who would declare what they had seen of the risen Jesus Christ and declare him to others. That's why Paul's witness to Jesus on the Damascus Road was so important. When he defended his apostolic credentials in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Well, the implication, that's, that's fundamental to being an apostle, and, and you know that I have seen him. You know that he did reveal himself to me. The apostles were entrusted with great authority to establish the church, and so we don't call people apostles, at least in that technical, narrow sense of the word today, because there, uh, there are no people who meet those criteria anymore. It was a temporary role that God used to establish the church. But that also may explain for us why in the history of the church, the, the record of biblical uh, prophets, uh, prophets in the, in, the, in the way that we've been, we've been seeing them defined in Scripture as we've gone through this series, people who authoritatively reveal the Word of God and do so accurately and do so with uh, divine compulsion from God. Those prophets largely disappear from the historical record around the middle of the second century. This verse helps explain why that may, may be uh, the case, because this verse says that prophets, along with apostles, were instrumental in the foundation of the church. So as the scriptures were still being written and the churches were still being, uh, still being established, there was a great need for people to authoritatively, accurately deliver direct revelation from God. And so it's not surprising to see God raising up lots of people to do that and, and to use them greatly in the, in the early church. But as the New Testament is completed and the church is established, historical references to biblical prophets largely disappear. What I'm not saying here is that God can't raise up prophets again. In fact, uh, Scripture says that he will. In, in Revelation uh, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, it speaks of two end-time prophets that will come. It's not saying that people can't give biblical prophecies, that there can't be biblical prophets, but 
if it's saying that apostles are, uh, their, their key role has been to found and establish and become the foundation of the church, then as that foundation is, is established, it would be entirely natural that we would see that their, their role, like that of the apostles, uh, fades. And, and that, that has been the historical record. We don't use foundation stones on the roof, and so we, in the same way, we, we're not surprised when we look at the historical record and say, boy, there, there has been a waning of that, uh, uh, of that gift and that office. So far, we said that God is healing the divisions of our world by uniting people as a spiritual temple, and he's doing that. He's creating a people to display his greatness. He wants to show the world that he is the one who can heal our divisions, and he's doing that by knitting us together in, uh, in fellowship. We've also said that the apostles and prophets, and particularly the scriptures they've left us with, are the foundation of that temple. That it is as we are connected and rooted in the foundation that God has given us in the scriptures that we become all that God wants us to be. But having dealt with the foundation, we need to look at the cornerstone. And so we'll conclude by, by, by considering whether Jesus is your cornerstone or just another brick. There can be no true unity if we only have a loose connection to Jesus. Either we accept him as cornerstone or we reject him as just another brick. Verse 20 says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And my guess is that when you hear the word cornerstone, you hear what I hear when I usually hear the word cornerstone. I think of that nice little brick, at, typically at the corner of a large building, often ha has a date on it, often is set out in a slightly different color, maybe a little bit more ornamental than the other bricks. When you hear cornerstone, you're probably thinking of one of those. That's not what this cornerstone is. When it says that Jesus is the cornerstone, it's not describing a nice little ornamental brick that has a date and maybe a couple of words on it. It's describing something very different. A cornerstone in, in any ancient building was the largest and most significant uh, stone in the entire structure. What you would do, before you began to build the foundation, you would start with the cornerstone, and you would have to choose and select a large uh, 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 stone that would become the, the thing that oriented everything else in the building. It, it would have to bear the weight of the structure, and so it would be massive. It, it would have to be the thing by which all of the other stones and walls were aligned. And so you would, you would find one that was going to be carved into just the right shape. At the turn of the century, archaeologists discovered five enormous stones that would make up the foundation of the Jewish uh, uh, temple in Jerusalem. The largest of these measures 16 meters long by 3 meters high, four meters wide, and it weighs an incredible 570 tons. It's absolutely massive. You can go on and, and, and see this, uh, uh, this stone online. The cornerstone would dwarf every other stone in the building, and so every other stone would be aligned with it. It would be 
it, w- it would be connected in relation to it. So when we say that Jesus is a cornerstone here, we're saying that he is so large and imposing that you don't just fit him into the rest of the building. He will either be the, the, the thing upon which everything else is established or he will ultimately just not fit into the structure. To deny Jesus' place as cornerstone then is to reject him altogether. That's why Peter said in Acts 4.11, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, some people think that becoming a Christian is just adding Jesus to the life. It's like taking a brick and putting him in somewhere, finding a place for him. Maybe a little bit like that ornamental brick that you see at the corner of a nice building. You find a place for Jesus, you might find a nice place for Jesus, but he is just, at the end of the day, uh, one of the bricks that fills one of the holes in your life. But what we're saying is that that is not Christianity. That is not what it means to trust in Christ. And if he is not your cornerstone, then ultimately you have rejected him and traded him for something else. It's one of the reasons that it makes it so difficult to discern whether our children have really grasped the essence of our faith. Because so often with children, as they hear the the Bible stories and they hear the messages, it's very easy for them to think, oh, I get it. Jesus is something that I add to my life to make things better. And that sounds like a great message. And who wouldn't want to add Jesus as a little block to our life to make things better? It's like a, a magic bullet or a, a secret pill that we can, we can fill in. And sometimes the reason that they've gotten that impression is because they have seen parents who have, who have treated Jesus very much like that, as something that gets added to a life that's headed in this direction, whatever he thinks, and he just fills a little hole called religion, but never really becomes a cornerstone. When we say that we trust in Jesus as cornerstone, we're saying that we recognize that he is not just another brick. We're not just giving him a nice little place. We are not just setting him in a religious corner with a little bit of decoration and ornamentation. When we trust in Jesus as cornerstone, we recognize the whole foundation needs to be dug up and reoriented in relationship to him. It means seeing him for who he is. Like that 570-ton Jerusalem temple uh, stone, we don't just add him to the structure of our life and keep going. A true cornerstone redefines the building. It, 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 it redirects everything that we do and everything in our life becomes aligned to him. If you're going to incorporate a 16-meter long stone in your life, you're going to have to dig up the foundation. You're going to have to look at the things in your life and look at them in relationship to him. And so my question for you this morning, is Jesus truly your cornerstone or is he just another brick? Is he just another thing that you use to fill a little hole called religion? Or is he the 
Is he the one upon which everything in your life is ultimately oriented and defined? Have you let him redefine your faith and your values? Have you let him redefine your approach to your studies and your schooling, your your work and your career? Have you let him redefine how you see money, how you see time, how you see the dreams that you have for your life? Have you let him redefine how you relate to people he calls your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because it's here that the unity that we've been talking about, the kind of unity that heals the divisions in our world, this is where it can, can come from. It's also here that it can fall apart if it doesn't take place, if we build our fellowship on something else. If you want to do that, one of the places to start is in our life groups. We talk about our life groups because it's here that we believe God builds relationships. Here he builds family. Because we can't do that when everybody's in lines. We get people out of lines into circles because we believe it's as we look at each other, connect with one another, that we can be built into the kind of relationships that God has called us to. I'd give you another just very practical way to work on this. Make our connection time a priority. On Sundays, you may say, Paul, I don't really like coffee. 10.30 in the morning, I'm not really thinking about cookies or cake or other thing. That's not what this is. Our connection time is an opportunity for you to build relationships in the body of Christ, to get to know people that God calls your brother, God calls your sister. Finally, I'd just give you another just real practical thing that you can do. Every Wednesday, we, give out, we, we send out uh, a, a prayer guide by email. If you're not getting one, you can send me an email, and I'll get you, uh, make, make sure you get a copy of that. But as you begin to pray for the needs of the family of God, you begin to develop your love for the family of God. You express your concern for the family of God. And as we do that, it's with a hope that God would build us, God would change us, and that God would ultimately reveal more of who he is to a watching world that needs him. Let's look to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the incredible privilege that we have as your children. Thank you for adopting us into this family. Thank you for breaking down the walls that stood and kept us from you. Continue that work, Father, in eliminating the classes and the barriers between your people. Would you help us to live out your new identity, our our new identity as citizens of heaven? Would you help us to grow in our love for one another? Would you help us to make time for one another? And as you break down the barriers between us, would you use us to heal the divisions in our world? For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.